Hi, thank you for tuning into the Shorts Decks. I'm Lisa Quintero, Young Adult Librarian. And I'm Lizzie Jelly, Virtual Engagement Librarian. This is the show where we talk to you about what we've been reading, listening to, or watching. And this month, we're talking to you about nonfiction books that we've been reading. Yes, I am so excited because this podcast actually forced me to read some nonfiction <laughs> and break me out of my fantasy romance. I'm not going to call it a reading rut because I thoroughly enjoyed being there, mm-hmm. but it's nice to mix it up. And this was a really good push in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we got to step out of our comfort zone. And I, one of my books talks about that a little Ooh. bit. So yeah, um, let's talk about being pushed out of our comfort zone. All right, let's talk about it. So yeah, so the first book that I read was called The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self, written by Michael Easter. came out in 2021. It is read by the author because I, I did all my books as audiobooks, Ooh. just full disclosure. Um, and they were all either on Hoopla or Libby. So But yeah, so it's read by the author. Uh, He is a contributing editor of Men's Health magazine, and he is also a regular columnist for Outside magazine. And so he's won a lot of awards uh, with his journalism. And in this book, he talks to researchers and adventurers to discover the secret of why discomfort is important and necessary in order to test our physical and mental endurance. And so along the way, he learns that by pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, because we live in this world now where like everything for most people, is very easily accessible, you know, with technology. A lot of us work jobs where we sit most of the day. A lot of us can order things and have them come straight to our house. And, like, we don't have to do the things that our ancestors did in terms of, like, foraging for food or going on adventures or, you know, having to hike across the plains to get somewhere. Like, we don't do that stuff anymore. And so it talks about pushing yourself every once in a while, you know, physically, mentally, in order to reinforce certain neural pathways and uh, they found that by doing so you end up releasing your depression levels and your anxiety levels Mm. and you also decrease burnout and so he talks to a few different people he talks like a person who's like a one of the exercise scientists for the NBA and like they talk about how you know if, if they're lead athletes are performing the same exercises all the time. Their muscles get used to the things that they're doing and they don't ever get stronger or better at what they're doing. So they have to create these training programs where they're like getting different input um, and pushing them to their limits in different ways. But, you know, they do it in a way that's safe because they don't want to completely hurt the the players, but at the same time they they push them. Um, And so a a lot of the book talks about, you know, pushing yourself not to like, the I'm gonna die limit, like like the goal is <laughs> to like far, yeah. like yeah, that's one thing that he talks about, and he talks about like in Japanese culture how like one of the things is that like people in Japan tend to accept death more, mm-hmm. and he's like you know in the West we don't really like to talk about death and we don't accept death, and he's like we need to learn to accept death, but we also don't want to push ourselves to that <laughs> level, but you want to push yourself close to that, but not quite there, you know. Okay, okay. So he, learn your limits. Yeah, yeah. So he ends up going on this long hunting trip for like three months up in Alaska with a couple guys who do that regularly. And they live out in the wilderness for three months and have to like evade bears and like, you know, live off of just tiny little rations of food. And like he doesn't know if he's going to be able to do it. And he ends up doing it and they end up, you know, they get an elk and they kill it and they eat it and they do the whole thing. And, and like, you know, that's the way that he chooses to test himself. But he also talks to to other people who choose to test themselves in different ways, like people who are backpackers and Mm -hmm. people who, um, you know, are athletes and people who um, do spiritual practices and how all of these different things, all of them, the thing that they have in common is pushing people Mm. outside of their comfort zone. And in that, um, you kind of reset your brain 
Um, he also talks about cold therapy, which is something that like I've heard more about in recent years, which is like the thing where instead of taking like hot showers, you take cold showers because oh. it resets your nervous system. Okay. And, like, um, I've heard that yeah. like when you're feeling anxious, you're supposed to put your face in a bowl of ice water yeah. to like reset your anxiety. And yeah. I've, I've never done it, uh-huh. but I've had friends do it and they say it's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I'm, I'm not a polar bear club remember you know the people who go swimming in like, oh, like, like michigan yeah, yeah yeah i don't i don't do I'm that i'm not gonna push myself that far but i do know people who do that and they say that it works really well for them and i'm like okay like i'm not very good with the cold but i i can push myself in other ways and yeah i, I like this book a lot because um i found that with covid and, and all the stuff that was mm-hmm. happening in the last couple of years um i started pushing myself to do some things like i'd never gone camping before and i talked about this on the last season of the po- or two seasons ago on the podcast and like and, you know, I pushed myself to do this thing that I'd never done before. And when I go and do it now, like I've pushed myself to do like longer trips or things like that, because it's it's like self-esteem building to be mm-hmm. like, hey, look, I can actually do this thing. I can survive out in the wilderness for like a week by myself and be perfectly OK. And, you know, nothing's going to kill me <laughs> or like, you know, yes, you got to be smart about things. You shouldn't yes. just go out there without like any plan or anything like Please that. Please research first. Because um. the idea is not to die. The idea is to push yourself out of your comfort level. And he also talks about that too. You know, it's like some people are like extremists. And so it's like some people are going to push themselves closer to that brink. And other people, you know, it's just a matter of getting out of your office chair, out of your office mm-hmm. and going out there and doing something different, trying a new hobby, trying something different just to get, you know, different neural pathways going in your brain and to increase you know, dopamine and gets you less stressed out and less depressed. So, yeah, that was good. Super cool. <laughs> um, speaking of death, <laughs> um, we all know, well, maybe you guys listening don't know this yet, but many people in my life know that I have like a weird fascination with like death culture and mm-hmm. like funeral practices. Mm-hmm. And so I love reading books about this. One of my favorite books is a book called Dark Archives, and it's about books bound in human skin. Okay. Um, I'm not talking about that one today, but I also it's really good if you're into that sort of thing. But I want to mention a book called All the Living and the Dead, From Embalmers to Executioners, an Exploration of the People Who Have Made Death Their Life's Work by Haley Campbell. And it's all about people who work in the death industry. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really interesting. I haven't finished it yet, but I started it last night, and I – I went way further than I intended to because mm-hmm. I got hooked mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. fast. Um, so Campbell's a journalist by trade, and that really kind of comes through in how she approaches writing this book because each chapter is focused on interviewing one person who works at a different part of the death industry. Mm-hmm. So the first chapter, she um, interviews and works with a funeral director in mm-hmm. the UK, um, and some other chapters, she um, works with like a crime scene cleaner and um, what is it? What did she call it? A bereavement midwife. Okay. Um, so just like all kinds of stuff across the board about like cultural and um, kind of more technical aspects of mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. And in the opening, she talks about something that you mentioned that how, especially here in Western culture, we're really hesitant to talk about death. It's mm-hmm. kind of a taboo for us. We don't like to engage with it until we're forced to. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I thought really interesting that came in early on in the book is the first chapter follows a funeral director in the UK and she's giving a talk at a college where they're having like a wake for someone who died like 270 years ago because they're in like like an embalming program. Um, And she says that the first dead body you see shouldn't be someone that you know. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh, interesting. And she goes into like a whole bunch of reasons about why that is, of how it's good to like confront death without confronting that kind of grief at the same time Mm -hmm. and to like do that kind of in stages. And so the author, Haley Campbell, goes with her to her mortuary, mm-hmm. um, and she does, like, um, what's it called? Kind of, like, natural burial and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. she doesn't embalm. She talks a little bit about why that's not something that she does at her practice mm-hmm. and about how that kind of end-of-life care is really personal to 
the person whose life has ended Mm -hmm. and about how like she can do that if that's something they want but she kind of advocates for doing it kind of naturally Mm -hmm. and what Haley Campbell does when she's there is she helps prepare a body for cremation Mm -hmm. and so she like works with the people who work at the at the funeral home Mm -hmm. to like kind of you know get the body ready and they talk about like what it's like and Mm -hmm. about how important it is and about all the different steps that come in with it and it's it's fascinating (laughs) if you're into this sort of stuff it's so so cool and it's like really cool to watch her insert herself in it that kind of journalistic energy Uh where she's like she talks about her experience she's like this is me doing the thing and confronting death with someone I've never met yeah um she refers to him like by Adam, she actually has a really funny foreword at the beginning of the book. Where oh. She's like, "All the living people, I'm using their real names, but I'm using <laughs> fake names to protect the identities of the dead." And I thought that was hilarious. Uh-huh. And that humor kind of comes through as she writes all these chapters too. Like it's got some kind of raunchy humor in it, some kind of body humor, and it reminds me a little bit of Mary Roach. Okay. If you're into her, like she wrote a book called Stiff, that's mm-hmm. also about the death industry. Mm-hmm. Um, Fuzz is her recent one, um, and there's a lot of kind of, for lack of a better term, gallows humor mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. Like you, there can't not be. And it's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And she really spends some time at the end of the chapter. Like, she walks us through her experience, like, prepping the body, what it was like, and, like, kind of what it looked like and what they do and kind of how they make those decisions. And she walks us through her process. She's like, wow, this is what it felt like to confront death with a man I've never met. (laughs) (laughs) You know? But I'm only just a couple chapters in, but I'm a big fan. And I... Highly recommend it if you are looking for a way to kind of investigate the death industry without, you know, going and physically confronting a body, I guess, (laughs) if you want to kind of do it through a book. This is awesome. And like it's really beautifully written and it's written with a lot of care Mm -hmm. as well. Like it's not crass. It's not over the top. Mm -hmm. um, But it's definitely not for the squeamish Mm -hmm. because she she doesn't shy away from Mm -hmm. the realities of death, the industry. Like she's interviewing a crime scene cleaner in one of them. So there's Mm -hmm. there's some gruesome stuff in here, but it's it's so cool. And it's so fascinating. And yeah. it was, it's not out of my comfort zone personally, but for some of our listeners, this book may be well out of your yeah. comfort zone. Yeah. So if you're looking to push yourself, <laughs> I highly recommend. Yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds interesting. Um, and it's got a really pretty cover too. Like it's got like a skull and a bird and some plants and all these things kind of pop up in the book as well and all the little, little stories. But uh-huh. don't judge a book by its cover, but I regularly do. And it was so pretty on the shelf. I was yeah. like, I got to read that. Yeah, it is pretty. Yeah, little known fact, uh, I wanted to be a mortician when I was in high school. <laughs> I also wanted to be a mortician. Maybe, I don't know, there's something about librarians, morticians. There's some overlap. I yeah. firmly believe that. But yeah. I truly think in a different timeline, that's where I would be. Yeah, yeah, same. Man, yeah, anyway, um, I'm going to move on <laughs> to the Anthropocene Reviewed, uh, which is a book that was written by John Green. And for those who don't know, John Green has kind of been a big deal in the at least the young adult community, mm-hmm. but in, gen- in general, the literary community for a while. Um, his first book came out in 2005. Uh, it was Looking for Alaska. He used to be a reviewer, editor at American Library Association's Booklist magazine. Mm. And while he was doing that, he also wrote a lot of essays for NPR's All Things Considered and for Chicago's public radio station WBEZ. Um, And after that, once he started writing books and stopped working at Booklist, uh, because he had a little bit of a breakdown, he ended up starting this thing called Vlog Brothers with his brother on YouTube. Um, They were some of the early YouTube people. And they also got some money from Google at one point to start something called Crash Course, where they taught all these different classes on like history and science and things like that. And so he uh, 
2021 came out with this book called The Anthropocene Reviewed, and it was born from a podcast of the same name. And in it, he reviews various facets of our current geological age, which is the Anthropocene, mm -hmm. um, on a five-star scale. Oh, and that's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes all over the place, you know. Like, his favorite beverage is Diet Dr. Pepper. So he, like, write, or reads, like, because the, the audiobook is great because it's read by him. Um, and it's like you're listening to a podcast because – He's got a good voice. He's got a great narration. narrating voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so he, uh, yeah, he goes into this whole thing about why he loves Diet Dr. Pepper and the history of uh, Dr. Pepper, which I had no idea. Apparently, Dr. Pepper was made from combining all of the soda flavors together. It was some person's idea because I, I learned that soda, like, it used to be that – you know, we drink pop soda, mm -hmm. whatever. I call it pop. I'm from Chicago. Um, <laughs> we, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but we, uh, you know, we drink that stuff as just like a beverage now. But it used to be combined with medicines in order mm -hmm. to make them more palatable. Um, and so he talks about that a little bit and how this pharmacist ended up combining a bunch of them together mm -hmm. and um, how it got the name Dr. Pepper. And so there's, you know, there's an essay on that. There's also an essay on the history of the QWERTY keyboard, which was born here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he also talks about his community experience and the deep loneliness of COVID-19 um, because he lives in Indianapolis, Indiana now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so for years, ever since he moved to Indianapolis from Chicago, he um, he said that, you know, when he first moved there, he was like, this is stupid. But he's like, everybody goes to the Indy 500. And he's like, it's so loud. He's somebody who suffers with like anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. And he was like, I can't do this. But then some of his friends like started this thing where they would like, everybody gets on their bikes and they meet up in this one place in Indianapolis and they all bike out together to the place where the Indy 500 is held. Oh, like the racetrack. Yeah, the racetrack. Yeah. And they have um, like a picnic and they just kind of, you know, they just kind of embrace the chaos because it's like you can't fight it. You're going <laughs> to hear the cards anyway. You might as well just embrace the chaos and have fun. Um, and so he talks about that and he talks about doing that, hmm. you know, after COVID and how it was so weird because there were no spectators after COVID. Whereas before that, you could hear the spectators from like miles away. You could there was cars everywhere, you know, and it's like and now you can. Like, well, I don't know about now now, but, like, when he was writing this essay, like, it was closed off to spectators, so you could only see, you just saw these cars, like, and their huh. pit crews, like, on the track, but everything else was empty, and they didn't have as many people in their normal group of cyclists, you know, cycling out to the, the track, and it just didn't have the same energy, and um, he's really good about writing about sadness in, like, a poignant way, and uh, you can tell he's a very introspective person, and that's one thing that... A lot of people love about his books, um, you know, like The Fault in Our Stars and uh, Looking for Alaska and all that. Um, and a lot of them have gotten turned into movies. So, but yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he also talks about like the cave paintings of Let's Go and he talks about um, the Canada geese. <laughs> I do love geese. <laughs> yeah, he just, he's just all over the place. And some of the essays are, you know, a little bit sad and bittersweet. And some of the essays are super funny. And some of the essays are just really informative. And you're like, hmm. You learn some things. Uh, yeah, and I just really enjoy listening to him speak. So I highly recommend that one, um, it's, especially as an audiobook. Cool. <laughs> I feel like I got to pick that one up, though. I love, I don't know. We all know that I sometimes struggle with nonfiction because mm -hmm. it just, I'm, a, I'm slower at reading it. It takes me a while to get into it. But I've recently found a love of kind of essay collections where I can kind of mm -hmm. pick and choose mm -hmm. or like, I don't know. I call them kind of choose your own adventure yeah, nonfiction. Yeah. <laughs> like you can go as deep as you want to, but if you skip parts, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And that kind of fits in with the next book I want to talk about, which mm -hmm. is called The Darkness Manifesto mm -hmm. on Light Pollution, Night Ecology, and the Ancient Rhythms that Sustain Life by Johan Ekloff. 
Um, he is a Swedish conservationist and bat scientist. His words, not mine. I was like, I want to be a bat scientist. That's so cool. Um, but he, um, the English translation of his book just came out like a couple weeks ago. And it's actually quite popular. There's a few holes on it. So I got to get this back in the bin mm. for the podcast so uh-huh. someone else can get their hands on it. But it's a really fast-paced book, and it's just plumb full of facts, stats, anecdotes, and the chapters are really short, Mm -hmm. which is not something – maybe it's just the nonfiction that I've picked up. But, you Mm -hmm. know, you pick it up, and, like, each chapter is, like, 20 to 30 pages, and I just, like – I feel like I get bogged down by it so fast. But the chapters in this are, like, 5 to 12 pages max. Mm -hmm. Most of them are around 7 pages. And so we really whip through it. But he's – Focusing on the way that light and artificial light specifically, Mm -hmm. like the light bulb invented roughly 150 years ago, has really had a huge impact on the world, our ecosystem, and our lives and bodies. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, oh, it's just so fascinating. I learned so much from this little book. And each chapter goes into like a hyper-specific aspect of like what this light is doing, how darkness is important to very specific creatures. Mm -hmm. Like he has a whole chapter on like those little – um. I don't remember the name of them, but those little glowing creatures in the ocean that when you touch them, they light up at night. Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. He's I don't got, remember the name, remember yeah, yeah, the yeah, name yeah, of yeah. them. It's like cyano something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and then he like gives us a little story about him diving in and like watching his glowing trail and about how, oh, well, humans can see this from about 40 feet away, but the giant squid can see this from like miles. And uh-huh. it's, it's really cool. And it's like really good if you're kind of like me and you don't want to necessarily deep dive into every single chapter. You can kind of pick and choose. Some chapters that he writes are more focused on like stories about darkness. Like he'll give a story about how the changes in light have impacted like a lake where his grandfather had a cabin, where he grew up in Sweden. um, And the eel population has really decreased because Mm -hmm. darkness is really important to them for like breeding and mating and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And how now there's hardly any eels in there. But he's like, but when my grandfather first built this cabin, he was eating eels all the time. He said, Mm -hmm. I couldn't get enough of the eels. But it's so cool. And it's so, I don't know. He brings it all together because he talks about how artificial light has had a real domino effect on the ecosystem and our lives. And it's like, it starts with bugs where they get confused. They've got their reproduction impacted. Mm -hmm. Like suddenly they like confuse light for the moon. And so they get Mm -hmm. like stuck in these loops and they get exhausted, scared, and they... They don't feed, they don't mate, mm-hmm. and so it just, they start to die off. Um, and then when the bugs start to die off, of course, the bats start going hungry because they're also getting confused. Mm-hmm. There's just less them to eat. The birds get confused. They get scared. They, mm-hmm. I don't know. And then it all comes down to us because it's disrupting our circadian rhythms as well because all this artificial light, it disrupts our sleep, it impacts our hormones, and it increases our stress. Um, yeah, it's just, there's so much in here. There's really so much. But he talks at the end of the book, it's not all doom and gloom. Like, and he writes it in a way that's it's really fun all mm-hmm. the way through, even as he's talking about how there's this really interesting chapter on the 9-11 memorial and how once a year they light it up with those really big lights. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how because they only do that one day a year, scientists come from all over to study the impact of those mega bright lights, mm-hmm. right? And about how the birds get really, like, disrupted and mm-hmm. it disrupts all the animals. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, we do this as kind of like an art piece of memorial, but this is the impact that that has. For us to look at some cool lights for a while, these birds are, like, terrified. Yeah. And it's, oh, it was, like, it's so cool. I'm really fired up about it, actually, and I'm like, I gotta go change all the light bulbs <laughs> in my house. Um, <laughs> but he does. At the end of the book, he talks about some suggestions for how we can kind of embrace the darkness, he calls it, and reduce this, like, excess light that we're producing. Um, and also I'll share a couple of them with you in case you don't want to read through the whole book to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them they talks about are using downward-aimed, lights 
He also talks about changing the color of the lights that we're mm-hmm. using because those like bright white LEDs are the closest to like midday sunlight. Mm-hmm. And so shifting for some of those warmer colors that are more close to like dusk hour mm-hmm. is really helpful for the environment. Um, using timers on our lights so they're only on when we need them or using motion sensing lights mm-hmm. so they're only on when we actually need to have that light on. And just learning to be more comfortable with the dark. Mm-hmm. He talks about that a lot too is like we have this kind of humans are very kind of freaked out by the dark. And some of that is like biological, Mm -hmm. evolutionary. But he's like, we can see more than we think we can. We just don't give our eyes a chance to actually develop that night vision because all it takes is like one glance at headlights and suddenly that's gone. And he talks about for people who live in like cities, we may have, if you've never left the city, you may have never actually experienced true night vision because there's Mm -hmm. constant amounts of light Mm -hmm. pollution. And so I thought that was really fascinating because that brought me back to like, you know, I grew up in a very rural community and Mm -hmm. like, so rural that I always talk about as like true darkness, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I would, my parents and I would go outside to like look at the stars. We'd turn off all the lights in the house. We'd turn off the yard light and we'd sit out there for like 45 minutes so our mm-hmm. eyes could adjust. And you can actually see so much, mm-hmm. but you can see the glow from like all the little towns and like, I'm not going to call them cities. They were like, you know, 500 people. <laughs> <laughs> we call them cities. Uh-huh. But the way we can like see that light from, you know, 40 miles away mm-hmm. and how that has such a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Um, But he even talked about how, like, on the days or the nights when the moon is too bright, even that's enough to disrupt the night routines of some animals because Mm -hmm. um, it makes them vulnerable, that light. So it's it's awesome. But he does have the very last chapter is the darkness manifesto itself where he outlines, like, kind of, like, ten tenets of how we can learn to work with darkness, embrace darkness, become aware of it, and work to kind of foster Mm -hmm. darkness in our lives instead of being scared of it to really kind of embrace it as like part of our natural world and lives and to really kind of protect the world that we have but it's super fascinating and also at each chapter there's like a little kind of image at the beginning and there's lots of little bats throughout because he's a bat scientist um so it was really cool and it was a fairly quick read as well Mm -hmm. if you're looking for some I don't know, some hyper-specific nonfiction about light and darkness. Well, that pairs well with the book that I'm going to talk about. Uh, I read An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us by Ed Young. And he is a Pulitzer Prize winning science journalist. Uh, And it is very similar because it covers the light aspect of things. But it also covers things like uh, sound, touch. It covers what he calls the animals umwelt um, and umwelt is a German word and it is translated to environment mm. and so he talks about how each animal each creature insect uh, including human animals um, how we all have our own umwelt because we all have our own experience of the world so you know humans we rely on sight touch and taste and hearing a lot but other animals might rely more on one sense than another so dogs tend to rely a lot more on their sense of smell and he talks a lot about, you know, different interesting places that animals have their organs. So, like, some insects have their ears on their legs. Oh, that's like, weird. I yeah. didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and he talks about some of that stuff. And he talks about how some insects that are so small, like there's, like, spiders that are literally the size of your fingernail that can see the craters on the moon. And you would think, like, just because you, you think, like, okay, I can maybe see the crater on the moon if I have a telescope or whatever. <laughs> but, um you know, or if it's a particularly bright moon, but these spiders can can see that because that's how powerful the magnification is on their vision. That's freaky. Um, we must look so big to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the, a lot of the point of his book is us, is that we should try to understand other creatures and um, adapt, like you said in the Darkness Manifesto, to incorporate other creatures' senses as well, um, because it's not just light that affects other creatures. You know, it's sounds, mm-hmm. it's different things that we've done with our environment, um, you know, things like atmospheric pressure, things like that, like all like global warming, like all this stuff is having these huge impacts and a lot of the stuff was, you know, created by humans. Um, and yeah, so he talks about like songbirds that can see the earth's magnetic field, which oh, is like, ooh, cool. That is really cool. Yeah. Uh, he talks about jellyfish that have no brains, but they have very complex eyes. Yeah. He also talks about how, you know, like I said, he mentions dogs and the, the scented life of dogs and how, that's how they see the world. And so, like, when you're walking your dog, instead of, like, pulling them away from things, you should let them smell things because they're, they're, getting, they're getting so much information. They're getting, like, who was here, what time were they here, you know, what did they eat. And, I mean, they've done, like, studies, like, and that's the thing is he talks to all these different scientists who've done all these studies, you know, scientists who study insects, scientists who study mammals, um, scientists who study humans and neuroscience. And, I mean, they've found that dogs can, some kinds of dogs can sniff out cancer, you know, sometimes they can sniff out all sorts of things. And it's like, and they're trained to do these things, but that's how powerful their sense of smell is. Like, I can't imagine ever smelling like that. I can barely smell like, you know, like the (laughs) food in front of my face or whatever. (laughs) And people walk by like, do you smell that? No, I really don't. I can't smell anything, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But my dog apparently can smell all of these things. And so it's... As a result of that, I was actually talking to our clerk, Thomas, and he was saying that he's been doing the same thing. When I walk my dog now, I've been taking her on special, like, dog walks. Like, I always take her on dog walks in the morning before I go to work, but I'm usually, like, in a rush. And, like, I'm like, I got to go to work, so we Mm -hmm. can't stop and smell everything. And she wants to stop and (laughs) smell everything. And, you know, and the thing is, too, to keep their brain activity going and and help them, um, you're supposed to take them to new areas to smell new things. Um, And so, yes, I've been taking her on these walks where I've – been taking her a little bit outside of our neighborhood and letting her like just if she wants to smell something i just stop and wait patiently they're harlow walks that's my dog's name <laughs> like i'm like this is harlow time she can do what she wants you know um we'll, we'll sniff all the things and uh i'll wait patiently instead of being like i gotta be somewhere come on let's go <laughs> that's so cute my yeah. parents have a basset hound and they do something very similar they call it um her name's Poppy, and they call it her Sniffafari uh-huh. where she gets to just, like, go and, like, sniff around the yard Aww. and sniff. It's really cute. And yeah. I'm like, oh, I just, like, see my dad out there, like, with the dog, and she's just sniffing away. Yeah. But yeah, he touches on a lot of the stuff that you touched on, too, with the other book about the uh, insects, like moths, being affected by light, uh, about, you know, different species having problems hunting or doing things like you know owls hunt at night but with all the light sometimes it makes it hard for them to see because their eyes aren't adjusted to the brightness their eyes are adjusted more to the darkness and so you know he talks about all that different stuff but yeah it's interesting because he goes into so many different creatures like creatures in the oceans creatures like he talks about how like one of the things that was fascinating to me is apparently crocodiles you know their skin feels really rough and stuff but apparently it's super super sensitive oh weird um, yeah and so they can feel all sorts of things happening on their bodies that we you know that I, I might not be able to feel yeah so i i highly recommend it again i did that one as an audiobook and I know we have several copies here in our Lucky Day collection because it, it, um, he wrote an article for The New Yorker before it came out. And so a lot of it had like a lot of hype, oh, a lot before, of hype. It, before it came out. And it was just kind of like an excerpt from the book that he put in, the, in there. And uh, yeah. Oh, one other thing that I, yes. before I move on to something else, he also talks about how blind humans use echolocation. And oh. it's really interesting because um, he talks about how 
in previous times and up until more recently, a lot of educators were against blind people teaching blind people Mm. and hearing impaired people teaching hearing impaired people. They wanted like able-bodied people to teach them. And then it's like, but you don't understand the world from their point of view. So like, um, and so it talks about this guy who, um, since he was young, he would use his cane and he learned to use basically echolocation by tapping his cane on different things. He learned what an object might be. So like, you know, you tap it here, this has a certain sound, it's a door. You tap it over here, it has a certain sound, it's, you know, this. And so it talked about, you know, how certain environments can help with that and then also how how teaching blind people those sorts of skills Mm -hmm. is really important and how taking other people's umbelts, their their bubble, their their sensory bubble into account, you know, can help us help them. And, you know, we need to not think of things as just being in our human bubble of like neurotypical like everybody smells sees touches hears you know it's like no they don't and like you know think about things outside of that as well as you know not just for humans but for for non-human animals too and so yeah yeah it's super cool yeah do you have any others otherwise i'll give you my last one i have one more that i'll briefly talk about um it's a really popular book right now um it's called how to keep house while drowning a gentle approach to cleaning and organizing by casey davis um some of you may recognize the author from tiktok um and it's all about cleaning and organizing and she's also works as a therapist Mm -hmm. The whole book focus is basically focused on home care for those who are dealing with like mental health issues, physical illness, or just rough patches in your life, mm-hmm. right? Where care tasks around your house really seem to fall by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And I really liked this book. I thought it was really fascinating because she talks a lot about how we can reframe our approach to home care and self-care to mm-hmm. like get away from that guilt mindset. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what traps us. In this environment, like we're too busy focusing on feeling guilty Mm -hmm. about the way our space looks, Mm -hmm. that we're not even focusing on whether or not our space works Mm -hmm. for us. Some of it's like I'm reading, it's like, yes, this feels obvious, but I'm like, also, I'm not doing these things, right? It's like, (laughs) yes, I know I shouldn't feel bad about this, but I do. Uh And so it was really cool for me to watch the way she could kind of break that down and be like, here's how you can kind of unlearn Mm -hmm. that guilt. Here's how you can help set priorities for your house. She talks about like, She uses the phrase morally neutral Mm -hmm. a lot to kind of reframe our perceptions of our space, our bodies, and care tasks Mm -hmm. in general. And that was really, really kind of cool for me to think about and like kind of take a step back and Mm -hmm. like look at how I was framing these things. And it's like, why am I doing these tasks? Mm -hmm. Is it for me or is it for this kind of perceived ideal that this is what a house is supposed to look like? Am I doing it because of like some learned guilt about Mm -hmm. like the way spaces should be looking instead of thinking about is this space even working for Mm -hmm. me is it functional so she talks a lot about kind of setting up some strategies of how to approach care tasks when you are feeling overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and it's like you know I get very guilty of that too and apparently so do a lot of other people because this book is so popular (laughs) um it's like we're not alone Uh y'all um Where it's like, I just look around and I'm like, this whole house is a mess. I can't do anything. And you just get paralyzed mm-hmm. because there's too much to do and you can't even like think about where to start. Mm-hmm. So she like kind of goes through some steps. Like, here's how you can approach this. Some of it she talks about are like setting functional priorities. It's like, mm-hmm. what is important to you for your space to work and be functional for mm-hmm. you? Don't even think about what it looks like. Is it working? Mm-hmm. Can you find what you need? Are you comfortable? Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Um, she also talks a lot about going one space at a time. And that's... Oh, I am so guilty mm-hmm. of not doing that. It's like I do half of a task in one room, <laughs> leave it half Same. done, and then I do three dishes, leave the sink full of water, and then I put a load of laundry in, and it looks like the house is worse than when I started. 
So she has this, I can't remember all the steps exactly, but it's like a five-step process that Mm -hmm. she offers. She's like, here's how you can approach it. You're like going to bag up all your garbage. You're going to put it by the door. You're not going to take it out Mm -hmm. because that's going to distract you. And then you're going to get off course Mm -hmm. and focusing on like one space at a time, not even one room, one Mm -hmm. space Mm -hmm. at a time. Um, And she talks a lot about developing rhythms over routines because routines can feel really um, kind of punitive and they can really kind of, you feel guilty when you fall away from your routine, where she talks about kind of listening to yourself, what you need, and getting into a rhythm mm-hmm. of what's going to work for you. But it was, I don't know, there's a lot in this little book. Like, mm-hmm. it's very small, it's a quick read, but it's, there's so much in here. And there's a big focus in her book on how care tasks often get divided along gendered lines mm-hmm. in a household and how that weighs more on some than others and mm-hmm. what that means and how we're attaching a lot of value mm-hmm. to these care tasks. It's a short little book with not a lot of words in it, but it's really, mm-hmm. it's a lot to digest. Yeah. So I highly recommend it if it's something that you're also kind of struggling with. It's really validating Yeah. in a lot of ways. And I was like, wow, it's not just me. Yeah. This yeah. is a lot of people. Yeah, it's wild to me because like, you know, it's it's 2023 and I feel like we still have the standard of like, you have to look like your, your house has to look like you, it's an architectural digest no, magazine, you know? it's in House Beautiful. Yes, like. exactly. And, you know, you see these people on like social media that are kind of keeping that, that fallacy alive, mm-hmm. but it's like, how many of us can actually do that? And like, even back in the fifties when like, it was like, that was like the thing that you're supposed to do. Even then, like people didn't have like oh, perfect yeah. houses, but you know, but we have this, this idea that like, no, like house can't look like it's lived in. <laughs> Right. So like you can't up. tell if someone has ever cooked here. No one has slept in this bed. No one wears clothes in this house. There's no laundry. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody has any hobbies. There are no pets. There are no pets. Yeah. <laughs> no kids. No children. No toys. No, nothing. Yep. No personality. Just blank just, cardboard yes. people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that actually kind of fits in a little bit with my last book. Um, so the last book that I read. Uh, was a book from 2019. It's called A Radical Guide for Women with ADHD, Embrace Neurodiversity, Live Boldly, and Breakthrough Barriers by Sari Soldin and Michelle Frank. Um, Soldin and Frank are both psychologists. Uh, Sari Soldin has been working with ADHD folks for over 30 years and is considered like an expert in the field. And Michelle Frank is somebody who actually graduated from Marquette University here in Milwaukee and then also went on to the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. One of the reasons that I picked it up is because in social media, like Instagram, TikTok, the talk about women with ADHD has Mm -hmm. kind of been a thing. And I started thinking like, well, maybe I have ADHD. And like, you know, some people are are of the mindset that like, oh, everybody thinks they have these things and it's not true. But the thing is, one thing that we're learning over the last decade or so is that women uh, are diagnosed differently than men. Mm -hmm. And so typically, you know, traditionally things like autism and ADHD neurodivergence have been seen as typically male. But we're finding now that there's more autistic women than we thought and there are more women with ADHD than we thought um, because these things present themselves differently in Mm -hmm. them. And so they talk about that a little bit, you know, about how uh, women with ADHD might have learned to pretend or mask as they call it um, that everything's okay but inside they might be feeling like they're going to implode at all times Mm -hmm. because they're trying to juggle all these things and they don't understand how everybody else can do the things you know like make appointments clean your house do this do that talks about you know different symptoms like people who uh, talk very rapidly um, all this sort of stuff and I was like oh that sounds familiar (laughs) (laughs) like wait I see myself in this book Um. 
so yeah, they, they, they basically put together like a lot of psychology books, a lot of different profiles on different women that are composites. You know, they're mm-hmm. not just a, they're not a specific woman's story. They make up a name and put a bunch of different people's stories together and they're like, this is so-and-so. This is what she experienced in her life. You know, she was really, really good at school, but she was terrible at like social relationships mm-hmm. because she, you know, just couldn't like get social cues and didn't understand how social dynamics work and just didn't also ever have the ability to keep texting people because sometimes you forget and you're just like, you're like, oh, I really like this person, but like I also have 20 things to do and I get completely distracted and la 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 and it's three months later and it's like, (laughs) oh my God, this person is never going to talk to me again because I have not texted them or emailed them or whatever. And so... She talks all about, you know, that, like, interpersonal relationships. She talks about, too, about a lot of um, unhelpful behavior and from other people, you know, people being like, well, why don't you just try getting a planner? Why don't you just try doing this? And, you know, talks about how many patients she's had over the years. Both of them talk about how many patients they've had over the years that, you know, have tried all the planners, have tried all the things, and all it does is make you feel worse about yourself mm-hmm. because you, you're like, something's wrong with me, I'm broken. And so a big part of the book is stepping away from that framework and being like, Nothing is wrong with me. I am not broken. And learning what your individual strengths are, learning how to step out of negative self-talk, learning how to step out of those expectations, you know, kind of like you were saying with the cleaning, like things are morally neutral, you know. Yes, it's this like, doesn't make you a bad person this, yes. because you can't do it. So you didn't fail. Yes. Yeah. So she, you know, they talk about that. They have a bunch of different exercises that you can do at the end of each chapter. Um, you know, or at the beginning of the book, it kind of goes over how ADHD presents itself in women. And then they have you like write a bunch of stuff down and be like, how many of these sound familiar to you? And then that kind of helps you be like, oh, yes, no. Um, You know, you still, they still suggest you talk to an actual therapist to get a diagnosis and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, this is the first step in doing so. And they're trying to get more people to understand what it's like to be a woman with ADHD Mm -hmm. and how to honor their, their neurodiversity and communicate confidently and um, express boundaries, you know, because they talk about how a lot of neurodivergent women, whether they have ADHD or autistic, um, a lot of neurodivergent women are not always the best at doing boundaries mm-hmm. because they feel like they have to make everybody else happy. And so they put all their needs like down deep inside until they experience burnout and then kind of implode. Yeah. <laughs> and no one wins. You know? Yeah, exactly. So yes, that one's really good. Uh, again, I listened to that one, but mm. you can like pause it and write down the exercises and do those. Um, but we also have the book format of that one if that's easier for you. Yeah. I wasn't always the best about doing the exercises because I was listening to this <laughs> audiobook while I was like doing dishes or things like that. And I would just like do like mental checklists and be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, or like, you know, keep listening to whatever they were talking about. But yeah, yeah, they talk about to the, the three different types of ADHD. They talk about the combined type, uh, which apparently is what a lot of women tend to have. And then they talk about the hyperactive type, which is a type that we typically think of, which is like, you know, little boys who are like bouncing off the walls mm-hmm. and can't sit still. And the inattentive type. Um, and inattentive is also something that, um, you know, I mean, all three types affect women. Um, but they say women tend to particularly usually be on either the combined type or inattentive type. And that's why we kind of fly under the radar because inattentive, it's more like, you know, you're daydreamy and distracted all the time and, you know, but you might still be quiet in class and stuff. So you're not a problem. So, you know, the, the things don't happen at school that would normally happen with the kid who's bouncing off the walls because they're just like, oh, she's fine. She's just really quiet. Right. She's and a like, great she's, student. And this she's, is a desirable trait. Yeah. Yeah. She's just a little daydreamy. <laughs> so if you're curious whether you 
you know, think you might have ADHD or whether you think you might know someone who has ADHD or you just want to learn more about ADHD and women, I would recommend this book. It's really fascinating and sad to me how many things that we don't know about women in terms of healthcare, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's our brain development or, you know, diseases that affect us or things like that because just how our society is structured and Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> men have been the standard for measuring off of, and of course, different bodies are different, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's hard to, you know, measure up. Like, of course, there's differences going to be there, but they're not in the textbook. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's more books coming out. Like, I, um, I've actually put a couple books on hold that are also about women with ADHD and women with autism. And like, um, yeah, it's, I'm glad that there's more literature coming out about it. You listen to all of yours on audiobook, right? I did listen to all of mine on audiobook. That's like the only way that I can do nonfiction. <laughs> so I want to put all of our listeners on to a little life hack uh-huh. that one of the clerks uh-huh. shared with me. Halia gave me this brilliant idea uh-huh. um, because we all know I struggle with nonfiction because I just, I can't force myself to like sit and read and do that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Like I'm an audiobook girl at heart. But something that she has done is to check out the audiobook and the physical book at the same time and kind of switch between. Like, you know, you can sit down, maybe read a chapter from the physical book and then sync up your position in the audiobook and listen and to kind of break up the nonfiction that way. Uh And my mind was just like blown. Yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, I could totally do that, especially now that we have like resources like Hoopla where things are available instantaneously. You can get even really popular books right away without a wait list. So if you've got that physical book, and we've got it on Hoopla as an audiobook. Yeah. Might be worth a go if you're a nonfiction struggler like I am. Yeah. I know I'm going to try it with my next one. Yeah. <laughs> Just in general, like, yeah, nonfiction or, or fiction, like, yeah, I, I struggle sometimes because it's like sometimes I feel like my body needs to be moving. And mm-hmm. so, like, it's like, all right, well, I'm going to do the audiobook right now because my body needs to be moving. But sometimes I'm like, okay, I can sit right now and, like, you know, but when I feel like my body needs to be moving, if I sit and I, I read something, I'll read the same paragraph like five yep. times and it won't, it, it won't go in, in there because my brain's just like, you need to move your body. <laughs> no, that's real. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. As always, if you have any questions or comments for your host, you can email us at shortstacks at gmail.com. You can find us on Podbean, Spotify, or iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening and be well. The Short Stacks is produced by Lisa Quintero and Lizzie Jelly for the Short Public Library. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. The song is called Ice Flow and can be found on incompetech.com.